everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where writers sit around, drink tasty beverages, and talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There may be rants and raves and opinions that do not agree, but are lovingly delivered. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today's gallery includes Chaz Frenchley with Madeline Robbins and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 167, an interview with Colm O'Shea. Welcome, Colm. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It is an absolute delight. Now, my understanding is you're a clinical associate professor with the Expository Writing Program at New York University. Is that correct? Yeah, that's quite a mouthful. We basically teach essay writing, so we're trying to make sense on the page. Um, and it's, uh, it's a pleasure to work with, you know, budding young artists who are trying to figure out how to make sense in an increasingly confusing world. So it's a strange job. Yeah. Like, well, I've well, never well, heard of clinical associate before. That, that, that was my question. <laughs> Yeah, we have to put on rubber gloves before we handle the essays and everything. Uh, I, I think that the clinical just refers to um, the concept of teaching a skill rather than a subject. So instead of us working through a syllabus like you might in history or anthropology, we're teaching a technical skill. So that word tends to get applied to labs. So this word clinical got imported in from that lab line of um, teaching. I'm still going to imagine the white lab coat and rubber gloves now. Thank you. <laughs> I've seen some college essays that needed to be handled with rubber gloves. No question. Mm, well, I mean, all the buzz at the moment is um, chatbots that have learned to emulate human yep. sounding essays. So this is something we're all trying to get our heads around. And it's a fascinating challenge. I mean, to me, it just seems like it's an opportunity to realize why we are writing in the first place. I think so many people are forced into expressing their thinking and writing from a young age. They're they're forced to write essays. They're, they're forced to express their ideas on the page. And they have such a negative experience of writing. I didn't realize, because I loved writing from a very young age, that when I started teaching writing, lots of people were actually scared of it in the same way that a lot of people are afraid of, let's say, mathematics or something there's this real anxiety that this is going to be a painful or humiliating experience so i mean as far as i'm concerned now that there's a machine to kind of do all the writing for us we don't have to worry about it now we can just start to relax and do writing because we want to do writing yeah i was i was i was reading something just the other day um about how um the college essay is fundamentally dead now um, but I was also I was just I was just reading through your the, the blog post you wrote for Alma Alexander about why writers write. It's fascinating stuff. Thank you. Um, I, I kind of wrote that in a, a fever dream state of mind. I was trying to figure out why I am writing, because when I was a kid, I never thought about it. It was just I write because that's the most pleasure I can have, basically, is to just conjure worlds out of the void. But then you get older and, you know, I have four young children now and I have all these demands on my time. And when I sit down to write, I think a part of me is pragmatic and going, there needs to be a delivery here. I need to get something out of it. I need to have something I can put on my CV or something I can use to, you know, at the very least impress people at parties or something like that. <laughs> and it seems like a fundamental, like spiritual corruption that's been growing on me over the years. So I'm I think I wrote that essay to try and scrape away the plaque and remember the writing is basically a mystery. Like you don't know why you do it. 
and hopefully you don't know what you're going to find when you do it. And you should feel a little bit scared when you do it, I think. (laughs) I love that there's, I was just mentioning this earlier, but I love that there are more neurodivergent POVs and writing styles out there because I think it actually represents an increasing representation in literature. I mean, I, my husband put a whole bunch of his old college age books out and let's face it, the man had a ton of Clark and Heinlein and, and Asimov out there. But none of them really had that different self-doubting, you know, neurological challenges point of view. And I liked the increasing representation. And part of that led me to one of the things that I really had a hard time getting into and then fell in love with in your book, which is the new one I wanted to talk to you about is Claiming to Wake. Did I even say that right or do I need an accent for it? Oh, it sounds fine to me. Claiming to Wake, it's a slang term, uh, claiming where I grew up, claiming means to challenge someone to a fight. And the wake is the slang word for reality. So it's picking a fight with reality. Oh, it was. And Alma, again, to throw her name about wildly, Alma Alexander said she was reading this book. It was clearly award-winning. People just didn't know it yet. I could read it too. And I wanted, I got so excited. I wanted to chat with everybody here about it. So do you mind if we just dive right in? Because there's some really cool things. And I think this could appeal to a very, a very wide audience and more than they might suspect at first. I'd be honored. Well, it starts off that it's in first person and I'm going to call it heavily can't. Mm-hmm. I mean, that it's, you know, much in the way it's an Argo, it's a, it's an accent and you have to read it. And it is, or it can be on the first couple of pages, a little bit of a barrier at first to say, where am I? How am I settling into this? It's not quite as easy as a traditional Campbell settle in. Everything's easy, straightforward, but it is a barrier that makes it worth fighting your way through because once you're in it and you start listening to it, especially once I realized that it was post-apocalyptic Ireland, I started reading every single word with an Irish accent in my head. And then it flowed like music. That's wonderful. Uh, yeah, we were talking about music in the preamble. And um, I've become more and more kind of entranced with this idea that I think that my favorite writing has this kind of quasi-musical quality to it, which when I say musical, I don't necessarily mean pleasant. I mean that the quality of rhythm, there's staccato qualities or or legato or whatever it may be, but the sense that you're drawn into a textural sonic landscape and you you can't ignore it. It doesn't become transparent. It's like part of the pleasure or the challenge or whatever of the book. That that to me is very engaging. I'm reminded of like a, a book that made a big impression on me was um uh train spotting by oh, yeah. you know and that kind of you know it's it's full of filthy invective as well but the language is very very much kicking and screaming fully alive and you can't ignore it you know it is and it was the first book i think i ran into of the humans speak in sentence fragments all the time but it actually used them to break up shorter ideas and sentences and i wasn't sure how i felt again it's the cautious new approach i wasn't sure how i felt about it but it can grow on you yeah i I mean in a way acquired tastes are sort of the best ones aren't they yeah well, this is written in first person, and I, I'm going to call him somewhat of an unreliable narrator, if you don't mind. Yeah, I think that's fair. 
That's fair, because, you know, we the very cover shows you that it's somewhere post-apocalyptic with plagues, because it's a wonderful picture. It looked like a medieval woodcut of a plague mask, for instance. Yeah, that's my um, my friend. He's an Irish illustrator called James Seymour, and he does these incredibly stark black pen and ink drawings. And I saw his work online, and I the minute I saw it, I went, I, I have to have him for the cover. There's no one else I want to have illustrate the cover for this book except him. And I was just so lucky he obliged. Well, it, it's perfect. And it is a world that most of the services are shut down and people are mostly eating via IV bag, which I like that, you know, I'm a third, halfway in and there is no coffee anywhere. And I don't know how they're alive. So <laughs> that's right. I mean, that's one of the more unrealistic elements of the book, I suppose. It, it is. It is. <laughs> severely but, addicted to coffee. But I love that you had lighting up went from being, if you say that somebody lit up today, I would think of smoking. And in this future, I think of haloing, which took me into it's a very Ready Player One vibe. Mm. In, instead of America with stacked trailer parts, it's post-apocalyptic Ireland with with bodies tucked away everywhere. With well, also less sexist. And thank you for that. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> I was um, I I wrote this book ten years ago, before the respiratory pandemic that we're all familiar with hit. And I was just struck by the idea that it would be interesting to think about what would it be like kind of at the tail end of a pandemic when some people have come to the reasonable assumption that it's over and we should get back to business as usual. And other people are still of the persuasion that they should remain in the habits that they've acquired through the pandemic and that there'd be social tensions between those groups and that they might become almost cult-like. Um, so then when I kind of saw, well, somewhat diluted, but still pretty acrimonious split happening in the American culture in in the full thrall of the pandemic around 2020, I felt like, oh, maybe it's time to dust off this novel and try harder to get it out there into the public eye because I am I'm not very good at pushing my work. I'm very kind of, I love writing, but I'm very shy about even talking about it with you today, although I'm really enjoying talking to you about it. I feel almost, I'm so Irish and so middle class. I feel like everyone should be talking to me about anything. I have, I have never thought of the Irish as a particularly shy race. <laughs> well, I guess it depends who you ask, but I think that I'm from rural Ireland and I think that we're grand together, but we're a little bit standoffish when it comes to salesmanship, you know, promoting our wares. Oh, I sure. That feels yeah, yeah, a little yeah. awkward, you know, and, and I'm sure that's true of the British too. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm I mean, neither Irish nor English, and yet <laughs> I'm no good at it either. It may be a writerly thing across Maybe. boundaries. I, yeah. I'm a freak who likes standing in front of a room and talking to people. So no, but know. that's performance. I like standing in front of a room and talking to people, but telling them why my writing is worth their, their reading is completely off the table. So those Absolutely. are two different things. Yeah. Talking about ideas is heaven. And then talking about your material product is difficult. But um, it's an interesting challenge, too, because it's one that I got to get my head around. Because if I'm really serious about becoming a novelist, I'm going to have to learn to to just get over this, get over yeah, myself. It, it, it has become a part of the job far more than it used to be. I mean, I started publishing... Um, in the 1980s um and it was so i'm i basically i think of myself as the last of the ivory tower generation um you know i could i could sit <laughs> and type 
on a typewriter, my novel, and send it off to London, and my agent would read it, and she would send it to the publisher, and the publisher would buy it and publish it. And I didn't really have to be involved in any of that. And I loved it. I started, I published my first book in 1979. Oh, and my, I, I was a baby. Um, I was writing it while wearing nappies. But um, I still fight mightily against the sense that my job is to sit there and write the best thing that I can and then hand it to someone else who does all the other yes. stuff. And yep. I've worked in publishing. <laughs> I realize that I my interior landscape is at war with the rest of the world, but I bitterly resent it. <laughs> I, I can't relate to either of you two. I'm, I'm from the land of the uh, you have to do things on your own to get what you want. So I admire that you're doing that, Colm. Thanks. Um, you know, baby steps, but yeah, it's a pleasure. Steps. It's a lot easier talking to people that are genuinely interested in literature and the ideas that grow out of literature than, you know, I, I would feel a great chill in my bones if I was talking to people about, I don't know, the market, you know, but that's <laughs> terrifying. Colm, yeah. Colm, can, can you... I mean, this is this is jutting off at a bit of a tangent, but I'm fascinated. Um, can you talk in tolerably non-academic language about the connections you find between James Joyce and mandalas? Uh, yeah, um, I'm. I'm very. I have a strange relationship with Joyce, and that I don't really. Uh, love reading him I, i've met people that are like enamored with joyce yes. and they're like acolytes of joyce and i'm not i come at him as a as a sort of suspicious reader <laughs> and i remember reading him kind of uh reluctantly as an undergraduate and slowly coming around to find there were all these things sort of hidden under the surface of his prose and it was like an easter egg hunt and i i got more and more interested in these um geometric motifs and then i you know, I was in Holland uh, with a friend one time and I had a psychedelic experience and the, as many, I suppose, tourists do. And I had my first introduction to a deeper level of reality that was fundamentally geometric in nature. And then after that, my my reading of Finnegan's Wake completely changed. My understanding of what Joyce was doing became uh it was almost like I was studying a parallel reality that he had access to. Uh, through ways I don't know. Um, and I just wanted to track that idea of what is it like to construct a textural reality that's more interested in um, like a conceptual jigsaw puzzle that's mm. being put together like a tessellation. All mm -hmm. of the basic characters are really like phonemic constructions, like in the poem, the Jabberwocky. There's no real words in Lewis Carroll's Jabberwocky. There's just phonemes that are stuck together. They sound a little bit like words, but they somehow conjure a landscape. You get a sense that there are things that are happening. There's a hero, there's a monster, there's a quest narrative. It's it's mythopoetic, but it's not really written in English. And to write an entire book like that's fascinating. You, you, do, you do know that there are values assigned. There are meanings to all the words that he uses. Yeah. yeah. Gullig is that time between tea and dusk, I believe, if I remember rightly, um, and so on. But anyway, yeah, no, go on. Go on, go on. Yeah, go on. yeah no, I, I remember reading a little gloss that he gave on, on the words. He actually, Chortle, he, he invented that yes, word. Yes, he did. 
Yeah, and it's a lovely word. It's a lovely word. Yeah, it's a lovely word, and we we'd be poorer without it. Um, and I think that there's something about that. Uh, it's almost like it's bordering on synesthesia. You know that idea of mm-hmm. you're you're seeing a, something, you're hearing something else, and then you're feeling something as well. Mm-hmm. And none of it is is easily um, reducible to a simple signifier signified relationship. It's some weird, uh, uneasy. Tr- uh, um, I, I keep coming back to the word geometry, but there's a strange yeah. new geometry of meaning that's unfolding. And you realize that there can be curved geometries and <laughs> twisted geometries. And reading Finnegan's Wake is like leaving plain geometry and moving into curved geometry. And it's a, it's a great workout for the mind. I, I don't know if it maps neatly onto my fiction, but I do think that there's something about that I'm- awareness. Sorry, sorry. I'm going to submit that it does. I mean, to a certain extent, I, I can see where you were thinking with that and how it might have influenced you when you were talking or when our main character is talking about when he was a kid in school and you took it from how we used to all rent space on the game servers to let them fold molecules, you know, for the big molecule project. And then oh, yeah. how he was directly involved with that and then know that... We, when he has this vision that his brother may have left of the the pure non-Euclidean space-time, I, I got a very kaleidoscopic angles view of a lot of that. So I think I think it may have crept in whether you realized it or not. So well, I, I think that it points to a, a kind of a deep hope and a deep fear I have because I was raised in a kind of a world where the really the only thing at my disposal was when I was very, very young, when I was six or seven, and I started writing, there there weren't really video games going around. I don't think our, our household even got a computer for a few more years. And when we did, they were very crude, like a Commodore 64 was fairly boring games. But um, now I get the impression that there's a new era where people predominantly, young people, skilled, intelligent, ambitious people are spending more time in a simulated three-dimensional reality where they're manipulating objects in space and they're thinking about spatial relationships a lot more and increasingly they're thinking less and less in uh, words concepts don't get expressed as much verbally and more in terms of spatial relationships and i think that that's interesting geometry again yeah yeah absolutely there's there's a kind of spatial genius that's emerging and he's um, (laughs) Uh, well, artificial you, environments. Your, which... your hero, for instance, starts it and said, I escape, you know, which was a job specialty that he thought would be there for him. But then he gets into the job market and discovers, right, that one thing he was good at has disappeared, you know, due to AI, as we'd said before, which yeah. there's echoes of being replaced by tech and automation every single year. So if there's a question that you have is they can he, he seems to want to do what his brother is doing, giving up reality forever of is there a way to mentally give up to keep that which is the brain alive without having a body forever? Because at least I'm still partway through and I'm like, is this an interesting form of suicide or is it an upload of your consciousness? And there seems to be a little bit of a, I'm just calling it, you're on a cutting wave of interesting new topics we're seeing in sci-fi of what is it to be alive? Can I be within a computer? Do I have to have this incredibly messy body that needs coffee? Yeah, right. In a way, I think I didn't really think about this at the time I was writing it, but upon rereading, I think there's a question about a very basic question about where human dignity lies, because uh, for a lot of people, 
um, hiding from the body. The body is uh, shameful or disgusting or whatever. And there's a lot of people that try to escape their body and they might try to escape it through manifold ways, like um, disappearing into art or whatever. For a brief period of time, they like that quality of their body disappearing and they just immerse themselves in a good book or whatever it may be. But now, with the possibility that maybe all of intellectual labor, at least in theory, could be done by a more powerful artificial intelligence, where does human dignity lie? And I think that some people will find that that's a sort of spiritual question, really. I mean, will we continue to make and do things? And if so, what things will we do? What will we do with our time? on earth yeah. basically that's the question yeah, and, you know, yeah. sorry hun. um it's it's one of the things that um ian banks um the late alas science fiction writer and, and novelist um explored a lot in his culture series um yeah it's um oh what's 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 that word post 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 scarcity um, uh-huh. it, it, it's a post-scarcity civilization with very powerful AIs who are clearly, I mean, they're so smart, they might very well be keeping the humans around as pets. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, what, what do humans do when they no longer need to do anything? It's one of the great questions that runs through, through the whole series. Yeah, it's and it's increasingly like a less hypothetical question. I mean, if something could drill down, read all your novels, really, really, really train so that it is a note perfect impersonator of you, and then it generates your future novels for you, are you going to keep writing? And the question, I, I actually don't know the answer to this anymore, but I, I want to believe that I would, but the way I would write would change, but I'm not sure how I can explain how it would change, but I want to know how it would change because I want to write the way I would write if I didn't feel the need to write anymore. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, absolutely. You start out with with a character and he's caring for old people in a geriatric facility, you know, wiping them down, getting them clean, doing all of, you know, replacing the IVs, etc. And in a weird sort of way, I mean, I, I had an odd dream about such things years and years ago, but this is this almost had the little bit of death with dignity to it. Instead of living out the last of your lives, gasping and moaning and crying, et cetera, that you could spend it in this really beautiful nirvana of inside your brain of what your brain can create. And although he didn't exactly do it with a great reverence or et cetera, which you know speaks of his own challenges, but. Our, our character kind of presented a little bit of, you know, maybe this is a really beautiful way to end things. And I haven't got to the end of the book yet, so I can't, you know, give away what happens at the end. But, wow, what a beautiful opportunity to say you've lived, you've gone through, maybe you had the plague, maybe it is, but there you are, still clinging to life in your 90s or 100s. What does it mean to be alive? And can you still enjoy the end of it through this way? So, in a weird sort of way, it was like he was doing something really neat for people that had nothing at the end. And I thought that was kind of beautiful. Thanks. Well, you know, I think in, an, in a deeply non-idealistic way, I think he sees himself as maintaining the servers that are mm. required for the program to keep yeah. running. I also wanted to thank you for the Easter egg. 
of the quiet, hilarious dig of a U.S. president from the biddy at the back of the bus, because don't think we didn't catch that and think that was awesome. That's one of the few things I did add in the rewrite, uh, <laughs> the 10-year gap between the composition and the rewrite. There was a few things I wanted to tuck in there. Okay. Why, why was there a 10-year gap? I wrote the book, and then I realized when I had written it that I had basically written it as... as um as a way of teleporting from New York back to Cork where I'm from. Yeah. So it was a sort of teleportation device, but I'd written, I, and I loved it. And I think it works really well as a teleportation device for me. But um, then I, I realized that it's possible that nobody else would enjoy this weird linguistic reality that this character inhabits. So I sent it out to a few agents and they, didn't even know how to respond they, they sort of went oh this is interesting i have no idea how to sell it never contact me again kind of thing <laughs> and so i went okay um maybe you know novel writing is not for me so i just put it away and got on at my day job and um you know you know focused on poetry and writing essays and, and other things but then i just felt very strongly when the pandemic came out that the book had kind of just prefigured a few fissures uh, that had emerged in society that I thought it's kind of timely I'll try it again I'll try a little harder I'll try to be a little less shy and I just pushed but it took me 10 years to kind of just get over that hump <laughs> no I think we can all appreciate that it's you know when you, when you have a book if it doesn't catch on right away it's the oh maybe it wasn't as good as I thought maybe I shall just sit here and eat worms in the dark or something but i really yeah. love that you, that you pushed it again and you went back and maybe you added a few things and i figure they want to see the first 50 pages so maybe the they never actually realized that but you do have little easter eggs and again to draw a parallel for ready player one they're different they're not just somebody being nostalgic about the past this is very much a not nostalgic about the past so much as hey, we have a new society and a new future and there's fewer people and why don't we do it right? And there's it, it's a beautiful rant that your character has in his head saying, why do I care about, hey, we have trains and malls again, hooray, instead of saying, we have an opportunity to build our society better. So it's the oddliest utopic point of view in a dystopian that I've ever read. <laughs> Thanks. Actually, you know, I that took on a new meaning when I reread it again because it struck me that we really did. There was a brief period when at the, I, I don't want to call it the zenith, I guess it would be the nadir of the um, pandemic, and no one was traveling. And they said there was these news reports that dolphins are swimming up through the canals in Venice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That, the, that the planet seemed to be retaken. I, my wife had to go on a short journey and she was driving on an empty road and she saw all these deer and foxes yeah. on the highway. And yeah. there was just this like little nod to how quickly the natural reality could reassert itself if we just like, stopped I, the, the, making noise. Um, there is a bird called the Cornish Chuff, um, which has not been seen in, had not been seen in Cornwall for decades. Not outside the pubs anyway? It was, <laughs> it was, it was extinct within the county. Um, and then mad cow disease hit and all the footpaths were closed. Um, yeah, nobody was tramping around the Cornish coastline anymore. Oh. And suddenly the chuffs came back. 
Um, yeah, I, whether they came down from Devon or whether they've been there all the time and were just hiding, I don't know. Um, but but yeah, we had chuffs again. Um, it's it, it's not far from desolation to exuberance. Yeah, it's amazing how much silence and stillness can recuperate right. profoundly. And and I and I that's why I felt like there was this weird kind of missed opportunity, like that we had this little insight about how much damage we were doing and how profoundly we can make a difference so quickly just by yeah. calming down and, and being still. Mm-hmm. And um and then it was like, well, it's over now. So let's get back to exactly the way we've always been. Everybody <laughs> wants to go back to frantic because yeah. frantic. Yeah, frantic. Frantic is so much fun. Gosh, yes. Yes. (laughs) So when you were writing this, when you originally wrote it, was this just something, you know, that you did uh, on your own computer, ignoring Chaz and his typewriter, but did you use any particular tools in it? Tell us a little bit about your methods, and do you still use the same ones? Just as a side note, I... Physically speaking, like working with a typewriter strikes me as being like a literary equivalent to being a lumberjack, like <laughs> pounding down into the keys. Because I know there was there was a really old one in my neighbor's house when I was a kid and I played with it. And oh my God, like it was like a workout, you know, you, yeah. you had to hit those things. Yeah, um, so- I'm, I am. I am not physically a particularly strong person, but I have super strong fingers. Um, Just, you know, from from having used manual typewriters. I Long had an electric typewriter, which made it a lot easier. But my mother, who desperately wanted to be a writer and an editor, kept getting um, promoted at the publishing house where she worked because she could type 105 min- uh, words per minute on a manual typewriter. Yep. That woman could Whoa. have been throttling chickens. <laughs> the, now our question is, uh, do you use Courty or Dvorak? I mean, these are... <laughs> He's like the John Henry of typing. She just exactly she finishes the novel and then keels over and dies. I I fancied I was quick at over a hundred, and then I saw my husband using a Dvorak. I'm like, that's that's not possible. People don't type that fast. But I didn't know Joe used Dvorak. Joe uses Dvorak. That's fabulous. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what are you working on now, Colm? Um, Is there a sequel? I, I, I Is work, there a new yeah, direction? I'm actually the. I'm working on. This is going to sound. Uh, unstable, but I think I'm working on three novels all at once. Okay. I'm moving back and forth between them, and they—I think they're all growing out of the same basic uh, sort of soil. They're all growing out of the same world soil, but they're all distinct stories and they're all mm-hmm. standalone stories, which is like the stupidest thing to do because no, I think, it's not as lovely. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think that a smart thing to do would be to write a series or something like that, where people liked the world and they can keep going back to the world. To, to 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 kind of create distinct worlds seems to kind of break any momentum you might have, but that's just mm. the way my imagination's going. So that's the way it's going to happen, I guess. I don't know. I would I would want to. I mean, you've given us post-apocalyptic Ireland. There's part of me that wonders what was this same plague like in the in, for instance, how is it different in sub-Saharan Africa? How is it different in Los Angeles, how is it different down in Buenos Aires, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a fascinating direction to take. I don't know enough about I think we, I don't. I'm not well-traveled enough to do this. My wife is very well-traveled. She's actually a travel writer, and she knows 
uh, you know, she's been to Mongolia and all these other yeah. countries. And she, she's got, she's got the exterior imagination. She thinks about the world. I really just think about ideas. I'll, I'll run, I'll run the least developed idea by you because maybe I can brainstorm at you guys. Do it. it well, here's the pitch. So it's a world where AI is now largely doing the work of thinking. So universities have actually become more like their monastic origins where mm -hmm. people are going more for meditative purposes and to develop a sense of um, uh, why they exist. And as a result, the monastic universities have acquired a kind of uh, feudal quality where they're all sort of quasi at war with each other <laughs> and they're indoctrinating their students to their own unique spiritual systems so it's about the tensions between the university students between those systems. And the Army Corps of Philosophers, I can tell. <laughs> I would read the hell out I, of that And have you read Neil Stevenson's Anathem? What's that? Neil Stevenson's Anathem. No, not yet. No, I, I, I'm so far behind. Go up and read it. Um, it's, it is not the same idea, but it is an idea parallel. <laughs> Oh yeah, that's my next port of call. I think yes. Well, thank you. And complex, and I adore it. It also I'm... brings in. We had so many post-apocalyptic nuclear war stories. You know, we had we had the postman. We had you know, boy and his dog. We have Mad Max and the others. This mm. one makes it a little bit because a lot of us have been are still living through this. I think it's a a time and a period that's got legs without pe rubbing people's noses in it, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Because I, I, I think this has it's different than the shadow of a nuclear war. And not that we're out of that shadow, because obviously we still live in an era of uh, Putin and God mm. knows mm. what's coming around the corner. But it's not the nuclear war. It doesn't matter that, you know, biological warfare might be a thing, but I, I feel like the great challenge for the 21st century is going to be a fundamentally spiritual one, which is where do we derive our dignity? What role does human creativity um, play um, where we can outsource more and more of our creative work to machines? And, and ultimately, ultimately, not to get too kind of full pretentious about it, you know, very basic questions like, why are we here? I think that there's no hiding from those questions. When you're yeah. working, you can kind of hide from them, but when work is like a role play, then you can't hide from them. <laughs> but 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 I mean that that raises the even more fundamental question: um, Were we here for a purpose before we made the machines that could? take that purpose away from us yeah oh. I, I think our purpose is always to figure out what our purpose is to be honest with you it's the weirdest game it's the yeah. weirdest life is a weird game yeah how disenfranchising for god if we if our purpose, <laughs> purpose is to um cycle center ourselves around god and we farm that out to the ai's <laughs> if i were god i'd be somewhat pissed off oh that's the nine billion names of god well yes well, I, it was, there was a piece in one of the write-ups that I read of your book that I found it was, it really does deal fundamentally with an issue of addiction and what yeah. are you addicted to? And, you know, thinking about what am I addicted to right now? I'd have a hard time in a life without coffee and sugar. And your 
Tato, I love Tato. Tato is yes. <laughs> challenged with, he's addicted to not being in his body, to just being able to run freely through his mind and experience the reality that he creates. And what will we be addicted to in the future is such an interesting question. Yeah, and I, I'm surprised by the addictions I have now. I mean, like, I when I was a kid, I had a strong sense that addictions always involved, they were sort of dramatic and um, almost byron-esque or something you know like you might be addicted to sword fighting or uh, you know heavy drinking or uh, hockey or, or yeah you know what any kind of combative thing or yeah. difficult thing i can see the romantics you know in my mind's eye as being the standard bearers for like cool and sexy addictions but if you told me when i was like 10 that oh your main addiction the thing you'll really struggle with is like staring into this little phone and Mm. scrolling I, I wouldn't have believed them because like, yeah, it doesn't yeah, no, sound absolutely. addictive at all yeah. oh I would believe it for I was addicted to books as a kid I had books hidden within every single textbook in school that there was so and they're like she's not engaging no she really just wants to be left alone in a corner with a book which is why I'm less worried about kids playing a game because is it that much different when it's storytelling in an adventure format it's a wonder mm. Like the picture you have of the turn of the century, 1902, the train running through Reading, and everybody had the newspaper out and were ignoring each other. And that's mm. what I hold up when people are like, people are so buried in their phones. I'm like, I don't want to talk to strangers. So I'm, I'm my, 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 my history teacher used to tell a story about his father, who was an Edwardian gentleman um, and was traveling in a compartment train um, which, like you know, there are six or eight people in a compartment, and there's no, there's no aisle, there's no corridor. You can't, you can't leave the compartment until the train stops. Um, and and this guy um, had some kind of fit or seizure and tried to throw himself out of the train. And uh, my history teacher's father and a gentleman who's sitting opposite him um, grabbed the guy. And just held on to him until they reached a station and could hand him over to um, somebody who could take better care of him. Um, and and then they got back in the train and they resumed their journey. And my history teacher, as a boy, asked his father, "What what, what did you two talk about afterwards?" And and his father said, "Talk? Good grief, son! We haven't been introduced." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know that's interesting. Um, the the future, the hard part about imagining it, usually people think about the extra things that will be there that aren't yeah. there now. But it's the subtractive quality that's harder to imagine. Oliver Sacks was talking to his, you know, your your story there reminded me of um, uh, etiquette and it's yes. diminishing over time. Um, Oliver Sacks, the um, yes. psychiatrist, was talking to his grandmother who'd grown up in a very, very different England. And he said, you know, it's amazing. Over the course of your lifetime, you've witnessed the invention of the radio, the telephone, recorded music, um, motor-powered cars, space flight, you know, yes. uh, television, all these things. Which which thing strikes you as being the most amazing and has it been difficult to adjust? And she said, no, no, no. When everything arrived, it all seemed to kind of make sense. But I couldn't get my head around looking around London one day and going, where have all the horses gone? There's a sense of like, there used to be hundreds of horses and now there aren't any at all. 
this idea of what will disappear that you hadn't even anticipated disappearing that's a real challenge i think for no absolutely i my my grandfather the same um he grew up as a kid in rural kent and never saw a motor car and he um he saw people walking on the moon 20 years before he died you know it's it, i i thought well, that all was time travelers yeah i thought that was a gulf that was broader than anybody's ever could be um except that i think now um the the technology shift um i think maybe you know the, the difference from my childhood typewriters to when i die is going to be even greater sonic changes my husband mm-hmm. is a recording oh, engineer yes. and hears things that only dogs and yes. other recording engineers hear <laughs> <laughs> so we'll be watching a movie and he'll say they're using the wrong tones for the sound of that coin in that particular phone. Mm, <laughs> when you say, you know, did you get a dial tone? My kids have no idea what the mm. hell I'm talking about, except that their father has explained yes. it to them. But there are all sorts of things that were omnipresent when I was a kid back in the Pleistocene that are no longer there and their sound cues yes that i i mean there are certain engine cues that i know from growing up riding in old cars that are shifts of gear shifts of gear uh the the sort of rattly tap it sound of a car whose timing has gone to hell um and my children don't know these things. Mm -hmm. absolutely Uh, there was the uh, i had a lovely moment in a small museum in Orkney, um, the it it had a it had a display case, um, basically saying this is what life was like in the nineteen forties, and there was a dial phone, um, and there was a father trying to explain to his I don't know eight nine year old daughter how you used a dial phone because it is not intuitive if you just look at it. My older daughter was born in nineteen ninety. My younger daughter was born in nineteen ninety six. The plastic play school tool toys that she had. Yes. Julie, the older one, had a dial, dial phone. phone yeah. And Becca had a punch button yep. phone. Yep. So that right yep. in that six right, year yep. period, yeah, yeah, yeah. it had gone down to yes. a point where it had filtered into Fisher Price. Listen, you dinosaurs, I'm going to do great in Colm's new future reality because the minute we can record dreams and share them with others, I'm going to be a millionaire and you can all come live on my island. Thank you. Colm, thank you so much for visiting with us today. This has been fantastic, and I love you. Thank you for having me. Thank you you again. Can we get you back? Oh, I think we're going to have to. I'd love to. Absolutely. Well, we will put links to the fascinating things we've discussed during this episode on our website, which is www.ridersdrinkingcoffee.com. Best of luck with Claiming to Wake. I tend to tell everybody that they have to read it, and probably it came out this year, right? Yeah, just a few weeks ago. I mean, September, I think, it came out. But yeah. We should all go recommend it for something in the awards that we have, like, power over. So, oh, wow. yeah, go out there. Thank do you it. so much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you, and I'd love to come back. That's oh, a delight. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, 
both by Michael Engberg. Our podcast sponsors are Jackal Designs in Australia, The Bean Scene in Sunnyvale, California, and Arm Street out of Kharkiv, Ukraine. An honorable mention out there to all of the restaurants that serve coffee. We love you. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>